Hysteresis refers to systems, organisms, and fields that have memory. Hysteresis is a widely occurring phenomenon, from the Greek, shortcoming, or falling short. To predict its future outputs, either its internal state or its history must be known. Hello, welcome to Hysteresis. This is a podcast about science. But it's not just about new ideas, discoveries, and technology. It's about another side of science. The highs, the lows, the daily grind. The people, their personalities. Conflict and mistakes. We can learn from science when things go well. We get new theories, new technology, new explanations, further confirmation that the scientific method can work. But we can also learn from what happens when science goes wrong, when it falls victim to human failings, or when it moves forward too slowly or too quickly. Hysteresis, Episode 1. B-19, or Human Experimentation Just Isn't What It Used To Be. A few years ago, back when I was in college... I found the article. I think I had been looking up sources for a paper I needed to write. It was for a psychology class, but I don't remember the title of the course exactly. I want to say it was called Your Brain on Drugs, but I'm not sure. It was an easy class. It was a psych elective, after all. But it was interesting and the professor was good. Engaging, funny, full of anecdotes. Anyway, I had probably been looking up something about dopamine and addiction, for one of the reports we had to write. Based on previous assignments, the length of my paper and the number of sources I cited correlated remarkably well with the grade I received. So I dug up dozens of references that bore some resemblance to the subject at hand, a drug called mephedrone, I think. In the midst of my Googling, I found the journal article, and I read it. Then I read it again. I emailed it to a few friends. At least one of them read it, and he agreed. It was, without a doubt, the craziest article in a scientific journal that he had ever read. Two authors are listed on the article, Charles E. Mohn and Robert G. Heath, both from the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology at Tulane University School of Medicine. Dr. Mohn was an active researcher across a range of subdisciplines, drug abuse in adolescents, social behavior in children, addicts' responses to methadone maintenance therapy. For better or for worse, he seemed to have a propensity to work with vulnerable populations, children, drug addicts, and the mentally ill. The other author, Dr. Heath, was the more famous of the two. His death in 1999 at the age of 84 merited an obituary in the New York Times. According to the obit, Robert Galbraith Heath was born in 1915 in Pittsburgh. His credentials were impressive, a medical degree, a doctorate in neurophysiology, founder of the Department of Psychology and Neurology at Tulane, and department chairman for more than 30 years. His honors are too numerous to mention, but I would touch upon a few. He was, of course, elected to membership in Alpha Omega Alpha Scholastic Honor Society and to Sigma Psi, which is a scientific honor society. He was perhaps best known for his studies of schizophrenia, 
and for his bold claim that it originated not in emotional trauma, as was commonly believed at the time, but in biochemical dysfunction. In 1956, he announced that he had discovered a substance he called taraxane, which was supposedly found only in the blood of individuals with schizophrenia. Upon isolating this mysterious substance, which happened to be bright blue, Dr. Heath took the most expedient approach to elucidating its effects. He injected it into two, quote, non-psychotic prisoner volunteers, unquote. Yes, you heard that right. At conferences, Dr. Heath screened film clips of the once-normal test subjects receiving injections of taraxane and soon lapsing into catatonic, paranoid, or delusional states. Within a few hours, Dr. Heath claimed, the patients were back to normal, with no lasting effects from their brief display of schizophrenic symptoms. In his own words, Dr. Heath describes his studies of the effects of taraxane. After establishing that this was a safe procedure and that this fraction would produce the misfiring in the, in the monkeys, we went to humans and gave this to human volunteers. And they developed the full-blown symptoms of, of schizophrenia. It would last only for about one hour because it was being metabolized. They weren't producing it. This little bit that we put in would produce the symptoms temporarily, then it would be metabolized and they would clear up and be perfectly okay. However, numerous attempts to replicate this study, or even to isolate taraxane, have failed. And it now appears that Dr. Heath's methods were seriously flawed. The ever-cooperative prisoner volunteers seem to have been informed of the expected results of the studies, and were happy to oblige the researchers in providing the desired data. When faced with skepticism from his colleagues, Dr. Heath became incredulous. It led to very exaggerated reactions where I was rejected by my own colleagues uh, to a great degree. Nevertheless, despite mounting piles of contradictory evidence, Dr. Heath defended the taraxane hypothesis until his death. At the very least, he seems to have had a healthy capacity for self-deception. But then again, don't we all? When was the last time you changed your mind, really changed it, about something that important to you, something at the foundation of your career and public image? It's all too easy to delude ourselves into believing that we're correct and that what we're doing is right, morally, ethically, and scientifically. We get attached to our hypotheses and groom the evidence to fit them. And maybe, from a charitable perspective, that's what happened with patient B-19. In formatting, at least, the article looked all right. The tables were typed neatly, and the words were organized into two columns, snug up against each side of the page. There was a full page of figures showing three images of parts of a brain, overlaid with dotted lines and a crosshair grid. The paper cited a list of 13 references, nine of which were citations of Professor Heath's own work. 
The article was published in 1972 in the Journal of Behavioral Therapy and Experimental Psychiatry, Volume 3, pages 23 through 30. I checked, and the journal is still published today. There are recent articles on cognitive behavioral therapy and methods to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. Nothing too groundbreaking, nor controversial. But this article was different. At times, it read like literature, or at least like mass-market science fiction. It tells a story that is at once fantastical, horrifying, and compelling, in nearly equal measure. The article begins innocuously enough. It discusses pleasure as a positive reinforcement mechanism that affects the behavior of humans and other animals. But Professor Heath hadn't joined the faculty at Tulane to spend his time training rats to run through mazes and rewarding them with cheese. He would study the brain in a more direct fashion. And it wasn't just rat brains that he would be studying. As Heath described, We developed techniques for putting electrodes deep into the brain and leaving them there for fairly prolonged periods and studying both the physiology of the brain and the patient's mental activity simultaneously. That couldn't be done in animals because your animals can't talk to you. You couldn't explore the mind. You could only explore the brain in the animals and observe behavior. The opportunity to carry out studies in humans was a major motivating factor for Heath's move to Tulane. In his words, We had these electrodes in patients within a year after I came here. That was the real purpose in coming. In that study, 26 people had undergone brain surgery to insert electrodes into different parts of their brains. The wires were electrified, and the subject's responses were recorded. Only in a single area the septal region, did electrical stimulation produce a pleasurable response. In a documentary describing pleasure and addiction, Heath's brain stimulation work is summarized. Heath implanted electrodes in the brains of chronically depressed patients, hoping to stimulate pleasurable sensations. Not surprisingly, the experiments were controversial, but the electrodes did have an effect. In an eerie recording from one of the sessions... A patient, head shaved, lies on her back on a hospital bed. When the electrical stimulus is applied, she begins smiling and laughing uncontrollably. Heath asks her to explain what's happening to her. (laughs) What are you laughing about? I don't know. The responses to Heath's study were highly polarized. Some hailed it as a pioneering step toward understanding the inner workings of the human brain. But many of his fellow psychiatrists and neurologists, as well as much of the general population, were alarmed to hear what he had done. Heath explained, The majority of persons were shocked by it, and uh, we were accused of such things as mind control. It had a particularly strong negative impact on the psychiatric community. But Heath was undeterred by the backlash. Perhaps, the authors thought, this rewarding stimulus could be used to shape behavior and serve as a treatment paradigm for mental illnesses and deficiencies. And so began their work with patient B19. Their goal? Use direct electrical brain stimulation to, quote, bring about heterosexual behavior in a fixed, overt, homosexual male, unquote. 
According to the authors, patient B-19 had gotten off to a rough start in life. The beginning of the case history reads like a supporting paragraph to the famous opening line of Anna Karenina. B-19 had difficulty relating to his parents. His father was abusive and demanding, a violent alcoholic who berated his son at any given opportunity. B-19 described his mother as emotionally cold, withdrawn, and unaffectionate. He had trouble making friends and struggled in school. He changed schools often, was expelled more than once, and was sent to see counselors. After suffering through three years of high school, he dropped out. He tried his hand at a few jobs, working in a factory or as a stock clerk. He tried joining the military, but was quickly discharged due to his homosexuality. By the time he became the author's patient and test subject, he was 24 years old and had spent the last two years traveling around the country, having relationships and receiving financial support from various male partners. The case history section has a distinctly Freudian air to it. The distant, cold mother, the disappointed father. I suppose the description of B-19's sexual preferences as a clinical anomaly was typical for the time when the article was written but the tone is certainly jarring to a modern ear. After summarizing B-19's family and personal history, his myriad psychiatric symptoms are described in an exhaustive list. According to the authors, the manifestations of his illness are numerous. He is a hypochondriac. He fears the future too much. He is intimidated by other men. He is too self-conscious, but despises being ignored. He thinks he is special, but he has a deep sense that he is worthless. He is lazy. He has no feelings for others. He is depressed and suicidal. He can no longer obtain pleasure from sex or drugs. But at least, the authors reassure their readers, he does not display any effeminate mannerisms or habits. B-19, with his depression and suicidal thoughts, found himself at a charity hospital in New Orleans. This was not his first stay in a psychiatric ward. He had been hospitalized twice before, for around five months each time, because he was severely depressed and was contemplating suicide. But this time, he was under the care of the Tulane Department of Psychiatry, and Dr. Heath and Dr. Moan had grand plans for him. The evaluation and treatment began simply enough, testing his basic physical and neurological functioning. He was physically fine, except for displaying some symptoms of epilepsy. He was of slightly above average intelligence, but he was depressed, argumentative, and easily frustrated, according to the authors. Somewhere along the line, they decided that the best way to cure this suicidal, epileptic, paranoid gay man was to drill holes through his skull and stick wires directly into his brain. The surgery to implant the electrodes was invasive. With patient B-19 under general anesthesia, nine stainless steel electrodes, each with three to six leads, were implanted into different regions of his brain. It took B-19's brain around three weeks to recover from the trauma and once again display normal activity. But once it did, they fired up the electrodes, testing each one in turn. One by one, B-19's responses were neutral or negative. Then, 
they tested the electrode hooked up to the septal region of his brain. This felt good. I figured the authors might have used brain stimulation as a reward for expressing positive self-image, or cooperating with therapy, or simply as a way for someone suffering from anhedonia to break out of stasis. But no. The authors were going to use the electrodes to turn patient B19 into a bona fide heterosexual. Three months after the surgery, the authors sat B19 down to watch a 15-minute video clip of hardcore straight pornography. This did not please B19, who the authors knit became angry and resentful. The next day, however, was more enjoyable. They gave B19 a button, and each press sent a one-second electrical pulse to the septal region of his brain. This resulted in a very pleasant sensation. So pleasant, in fact, that he pressed the button 1,200 and 1,359 times during sessions on two consecutive days. When the time came to disconnect B-19's brain from the button, he was upset and vigorously protested the disconnection. During these button-pressing sessions, the authors described B-19 as elated, aroused, and euphoric. Afterward, they claimed that B-19 was in a better mood, and was both more cooperative and more interested in females. The researchers encouraged this supposed heterosexual interest with a second viewing of the same 15-minute straight porn clip. This time, the video did the trick. After masturbating to the film clip, B-19 reported to the researchers that he, quote, felt great, unquote. And so, in a move that makes me think funding must have been much easier to come by back then, the authors decided that it was time to hire a prostitute for B-19. She was brought into the lab, apprised of the situation, and introduced to B-19. The researchers hooked B-19's brain monitoring devices to an extension cord for increased mobility and let the two get to work. Although it seems that the researchers did not film or watch the encounter, they did interview both B-19 and the prostitute afterward. Their session had gotten off to an awkward start. He spent an hour discussing his personal failings, despite the prostitute's attempts to interest him in non-conversational activities. Finally, with her encouragement and guidance, B-19 lost his heterosexual virginity. In a line that I never expected to find in a scientific article, or anywhere else for that matter, the paper reaches its figurative and literal climax. Quote, Then, despite the milieu and the encumbrance of the electrode wires, he successfully ejaculated. Unquote. Aside from the egregious ethical violations described, did it work? Did this electrical stimulation therapy turn B19 straight? The authors seem optimistic, but their follow-up evidence is weak at best. They claim B19 was functioning better, but that he was still so self-critical that he wouldn't admit it. And as for his relationship with women? In the year after the study, he did have a sexual relationship with a married woman, but he also reported having sex with men to earn some extra cash. And that was that. No follow-up study was published, and the identity of B-19 was, to the best of my knowledge, never revealed. After reading the article, my first thought was that I'd really like to talk to B-19. 
I had hoped there might be some kind of follow-up report, but I couldn't find anything. Patient B-19 was 24 at the time the study was published, back in 1972. That was 44 years ago, so he'd be in his late 60s now. Occasionally, I'll read something tangentially related, an article about the brain, about misguided attempts at gay conversion therapy, or about the neurocircuitry of addiction. And then I'll think about patient B-19. I'll imagine that he might have grown out his hair to hide the scars on his skull. But now he's pretty much bald, and the scars are visible again. I never imagine him happy. Most often, I think he is probably dead. I never could find any leads. But if you're out there, or if you have a friend or family member who might have been under Dr. Heath's care, and you'd like to talk, please let me know. The article leaves me with so many questions. What was B-19 really like? The version in the article is a single-sided caricature of a person. After reading the article, I imagined B-19 as someone impulsive, depressed, and lonely, but someone who wanted to fix himself, or who wanted to be fixed, who maybe thought that God had punished him with an abusive family, with epilepsy, and with being gay. And maybe men in white coats promised B-19 something he had been searching for, for a long time. This is nothing more than my own imagination, though. In my mind, I see a series of images. A man lying on an operating table, wires protruding from his skull. A hand pressing buttons. A man touching a woman for the first time. But I come away from the article knowing almost nothing about B-19. This story is disturbing on many levels. First and foremost, of course, is the horrific violation of the ethical principles that should guide human research studies. It's unclear if consent was obtained from B-19, or even whether he had the choice of participating in the study or had any understanding of its risks. The physician's oath to, first, do no harm, was cast aside as soon as the implantation of electrodes commenced. Claims of ignorance of the potential complications of the surgery is no excuse. We knew long before 1972 of the significant risks of implanting precisely these kinds of electrodes into the brain. And yet, by the end of the article, the authors have concluded that septal stimulation is a powerful technique for, quote, reinforcing desired behavior and extinguishing undesired behavior, unquote. What should we think of this paper? It's important to remember that this was a highly non-standardized study with only a single test subject, an abysmal n equals 1. We should be grateful that this treatment was performed on only one person. Brain surgery is dangerous, not to mention the permanent psychological scars likely left by this experiment. The authors reassure us that B-19's welfare was prioritized over scientific curiosity. But did the authors really think they were helping B-19? Maybe, maybe not. It's hard to say. B-19 was just one subject among the approximately 100 individuals subjected to electrical brain stimulation by the Tulane University Research Program. The electrode implantation procedures were so dangerous that three out of the first 24 test subjects died as a direct result of the surgery. Those who survived suffered from infections, brain damage, and seizures. While claiming to be a treatment for intractable mental illnesses, 
The project instead disregarded human life and dignity, putting scientific curiosity above patients' welfare. In these studies, researchers took advantage of the vulnerable. They damaged people's brains forever. They killed people with these experiments. And to what end? Hindsight is 2020, of course, and it's hard to fully understand what they thought they might accomplish. Would finding a cure for certain mental illnesses make these experiments worth it? If there's any easy moral to the story, I think it's that we must be very careful when we try to help people, regardless of the seeming altruism of our intentions. There's something else I find disturbing about this study, something deeper than the banal cruelty and ignorance involved in carrying out the experiment. We're nightly audiences to evil these days. ISIS beheadings, mass shootings, murder-suicides, all on the evening news. For better, or probably for worse, it's hard these days to shock me with some new depravity of the human spirit. Something else about this story kept it in the back of my mind, even after my shock at the barbarism of the treatment wore off. It's not just what happened that surprises and disturbs me. It's not just the display of the twisted imagination of scientists. Anyone in possession of a sufficiently creative imagination can come up with worse. It's not just that the study seems useless in proving what it set out to prove, and was undoubtedly harmful to its subject. The study also scares me because, at the end of the day, it suggests that we're just like the rats that came before the human test subjects, wires threaded through their skulls. These lab rats would endure hunger, fatigue, and pain, all to press a lever that would deliver a shock of current to their miniature rat brains. When given a choice, the difference between rat and human behavior was minimal. Now, the interesting thing about the old stimulation, the rewarding stimulation, was the strength of it. It was somewhat different than rewarding stimulation for food and water in that there was no satiation. Animals would continue for hours and hours and didn't seem to satiate. They didn't feel full. They would just keep doing it for long, long periods of time. They would do it to exhaustion. We humans would keep pressing the electrified lever, too, hundreds of times per hour. In fact, it's not a matter of what humans would do. We did do those experiments on humans, and the human test subjects kept pressing the lever hundreds of times per hour. We are our brains, and those tiny neurotransmitters rule us. They make us us. All the deep and poetic thoughts you've ever had, all the memories that you cherish, all the people that you love, all of this fades, and you're left in a quiet room, pressing a lever until your fingers bleed. Professor Alan Baumeister, a professor of psychology at Louisiana State University, has written about the ethics of the Tulane Electrical Brain Stimulation Program. He argues that the studies were unethical not only by modern standards, but also by the standards at the time the studies took place. As for the lever and button-pressing experiments, he writes, quote, To condition human subjects to bar-press for electrical brain stimulation without a clear therapeutic objective seems, at the very least, to demonstrate a lack of respect for the subject's dignity, unquote. There's something deeply humiliating about these experiments. They cut through the flimsy barrier that sets humans apart from other animals and suggest that, at least in the most basic parts of the mammalian brain, rats and humans are not so different. I'd like to think that I would be able to walk away from the lever 
if it were my wire-studded brain in the room. But I'm forced to confront the fact that I would likely sit there, in a cold metal chair, finger tapping away at the lever. Animal behavior can at times seem pathetically mechanical. Mice can be taught to run through mazes. Chickens have been trained to play tic-tac-toe. It's easy to assume that this precludes any sort of higher thought or inner life in these animals. All it takes is a piece of food to capture the will and tune the responses of the creature. For a human, it's easy to feel superior. But between a man and a rat, some essential components of the basic reward system are similar. The urge to mate, to find food, to shelter oneself from hostile forces, and to press a lever to deliver a small burst of electric current into the brain. But, unlike the rats, we're also on the other side of the wall, outside of the room or cage where the animals, rat or human, the test subjects, are hammering away at levers. I'm not sure which scares me more, being the rat in the cage or being the scientist outside it. We know that humans can be reduced to lever-pressing automatons, and we know that we did reduce other humans to that state. I'm left with the shadows of two men. One is Professor Heath, a successful and controversial scientist. Over the course of his career, he published three books and more than 400 papers, a prodigious output by any account. But I'm left with the impression of a man who was too quick to jump to conclusions and too slow to reevaluate his own hypotheses. Someone with a talent for seeing his ideas realized, for putting theory into practice, even when it should not have been. The second shadow, more fascinating and troubling, is patient B-19. He is at once the principal actor in the drama and a blank space, a projection screen for our imaginations. And let us not forget that, for all our prurient interest in the story, for all its larger-than-life qualities, this was real. It really happened. They really let him shock himself thousands of times at the press of a button. And they really brought in a prostitute to have sex with him. It's easy to write this study off as a solitary example of the delusional, misguided dreams of a few men, calling themselves doctors and scientists, promising treatment. But I don't think we should let this go so easily. How can we keep this exploitation and violation from happening again? I think it's important to tell these stories, to discuss them. Some ideas die quickly, but others take longer. The idea that homosexuality is a disease, or that it can be cured, has lingered far too long, despite mounting evidence to the contrary. Scientific theories and medical treatments rise and fall in popularity and scientific support. Maybe one day we will see a return of electrical brain stimulation as a form of therapy. It's certainly not impossible. Look at how electroshock therapy has been revived as an effective treatment for some cases of severe depression. The brain can be a wonderful and terrible thing. Perhaps it is always both. It often seems hopelessly complicated. But despite this complexity, we must acknowledge the uncomfortable truth that we can be controlled by very simple forces. Let us remember this and try to retain some measure of humility. And now, at the end, I'm thinking back to when I found the article. Science has come a long way since the article was published, and it's been less than 50 years. I wonder, in another 50 years, what studies students might come across from the early 21st century.
I wonder what will make their eyes widen and their hearts pound as they read with disbelief what we did to try to help people. I'm not sure what it will be that shocks them, and that's the point. We can't always see, in the moment, what it is that we're doing and why it might be the wrong thing to do. We can do better, and we must, but we will still fail. We will still hurt people. We will still exploit the weaknesses of human biology. We will still let our curiosity run too freely from time to time. But I hope we'll look back with some measure of horror and sadness and empathy, because that would be a measure of how far we had come. Hysteresis is written and recorded by Sophie Arlo. Music by Tyler's Revenge. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review Hysteresis on iTunes. You can also visit us at hyspod.com. See you next time, and thanks for listening.